Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and aspire and inspire. Today, we're going to be talking about dissociative identity disorder. I am joined by author and facilitator of writing workshops and memoir classes for people with dissociative disorder. Her name is Lynn Barrett. Lynn suffered from this disorder as well. And as she told me in the green room, she wants to spend a lot of time on talking about what it is because it is misunderstood. So she wants to make sure that people get a clear understanding. And she will also be talking about her books and how her classes and workshop help people with dissociative disorder. So Lynn, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Curtis. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you and to speak with your audience um, about uh, this disorder, dissociative identity disorder. And um, I'm really um, uh, hoping to be able to set the record straight so that people have a better understanding of what it's all about. Well, before we get into that, why don't you start off by kind of telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a retired uh, school teacher, school principal, and pastor. Uh, in my retirement, um, I have been uh, writing my memoir. Um, it's called Crazy, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. Uh, and it will be released for publication on January 3rd, um, 2022. Uh, it's up for pre-order right now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So anyone who's interested in it um, can go there and uh, and pre-order. So I've been writing my memoir, um, and um, I have also uh, been writing a weekly blog and sending out a weekly newsletter about um, living with dissociative identity disorder. Uh, the blog is meant to be um, inspirational because. Um, the disorder can be very debilitating and discouraging. And um, because I have lived through that and I've come out the other end, um, I want to um, uh, inspire people that they can live another day and they can get uh, healthier and they can create their life um, over the course of time. So um, those are the things that I have been doing uh, in the years since I have uh, been retired. Um, I was diagnosed with well, I was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder in 1992. A, a multiple personality disorder was the name uh, that was used up until 1994 when the name was changed to dissociative identity disorder. And I spent about 20 years of my life in really uh, incredible uh, confusion and pain suicidal ideation um, and uh, many other symptoms that I could describe uh, more 
in depth uh, if you would want me to, but um, just to say that um, I was experiencing all these symptoms at the same time uh, that I was a school teacher and that I uh, was a school principal. Um, and that was certainly a challenge. Well, tell everybody what dissociative identity disorder is. You said you wanted to spend some time on that. So tell us what it is and how it's misunderstood in society. Yes. Well, dissociative identity disorder is um, sometimes sensationalized in uh, TV and movies, but it really is the um, brain's normal functioning in small children um, when they experience chronic childhood trauma and abuse. So um, I'd like to explain to you first what dissociation is. We all dissociate sometimes. Um, sometimes we, we daydream or our um, thoughts kind of disconnect from our bodies because we're listening to a boring lecture or we're so intent on something that we're doing that we don't really connect ourselves to our bodies and that's very normal. So that's what dissociation is. But dissociation can also be the body's defense against pain and trauma. Um, and so uh, war veterans with PTSD come home and they dissociate. Rape victims dissociate because they, they, they need to, um, uh, to, to have some distance from whatever the pain was that they experienced and in many cases actually forget it. So um, uh, dissociative identity disorder happens in very small children, um, probably up through the age of eight, while the brain is still being formed. It's not fully matured yet. And um, what the child does is sort of uh, split off uh, some awareness or memory into a part of the brain uh, so they can go back and, and live their life with their families and uh, act as if uh, nothing is wrong. And that's because little children need to know that their caregivers will take care of them because they don't have the capacity to do that themselves. So if a caregiver is hurting them uh, on a regular basis, what they might do is uh, sort of cordon off some of their consciousness or awareness into one part of their brain so that another part of their brain can go out there and act like nothing's happened because, um, uh, because they, they, they really can't know what happened. It would be too much for them. So over time, uh, those parts of the brain get um, very, th th there are strong boundaries between the, those parts of our brain and, uh, uh, and, 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 and it helps to protect us. It's very functional in the small child, but when we grow up as adults, it's no longer functional, it's very dysfunctional, um, because we don't remember much of what happened, um, but we know that something's happened because um, of the kind of symptoms that we experience. I guess the main takeaways here are that dissociative identity disorder is um, uh, caused by chronic childhood abuse and trauma, in the very young child uh, and that it's functional for the young child, but it's uh, dysfunctional for the adult. And so the adult has to address the symptoms uh, and find uh, therapeutic help 
that will um, enable them to heal from the trauma and also heal the parts that have split off and have made their life uh, a little bit confusing because they're not certain of what's happening. I, I would go back, though, and say that our parts save our lives. So even when our parts uh, are um, kind of difficult to deal with, that they are still uh, parts of us. Uh, and they're parts of us um, that we need to get to know and to learn to love. Well, tell us about when you realized that you had dissociative identity disorder and you said you could go kind of into a little deeper dive of the symptoms that you had and talk about the challenges that you face trying to live everyday life, especially as a school teacher and a principal, because as you know, kids require a lot of patience. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yes, well, my my parts were very collaborative. So as, a, as a, um, an adolescent and as a young uh, adult, I uh, was not aware that they existed. And uh, although as a um, young child and adolescent, I always felt like I was defective, I didn't understand why. I managed to create a good life for myself. I went to college and graduated. I married a man that I thought was um, a good man and we had four children. I became a, a very happy and fulfilled stay-at-home mom. And uh, so my family um, was my life. At about the age of um, somewhere between the age of 35 and 39, that started to peel away and I didn't know why. Um, I started to have triggers, but I didn't know what triggers were, so I didn't know what that meant. And I uh, started to um, feel unreal as if I were up in the corner of the ceiling looking down on this woman going through life who was feeling a lot of pain. I found that my emotions and my thinking didn't match, that I had multiple strains of consciousness going on that seemed to conflict with one another. I had a lot of body pain. Um, it, it really is what we call body memory. And I didn't know where that was coming from. Sometime I'd have to, sometimes I would roll up into a fetal position uh, and I would experience catatonia where I would just um, stare out into space. Um, I had a lot of suicidal ideation, uh, and in fact, I attempted suicide um, at one point. But the piece that really broke everything open was when my husband, when I discovered that my husband had been having an affair. And um, I want to make it very clear that his affair did not cause my dissociative identity disorder, but that affair was a betrayal that mimicked my early childhood betrayal. And so my parts were no longer safe. Um, and they split apart and made themselves known, even though at the time, I didn't understand that they were parts, and I didn't believe that they were parts. Um, I, uh, that's, in fact, what was happening. And so I, um, at this point, I was um, teaching in a Quaker school, I attempted suicide 
was in the midst of my suicide attempt, another part of me came up and said, no, you're not going to die and uh, called someone so that I uh, was not successful at suicide, for which I'm quite grateful. Uh, but at the time I wasn't, of course. Um, and then I would say about two years after that, I finally, uh, I, re I, I that, that time I was the head of a Quaker school, which is another word for principal. And I realized I could not continue uh, in school leadership because I was so emotionally unglued. And um, so I had submitted my resignation and then I uh, admitted myself to the women's unit of a psychiatric uh, hospital for 30 days. Uh, many, many people with DID, dissociative identity disorder, experience hospitalization and often it's really a horror story. Fortunately for me, it was not a horror story, and the unit was very supportive. I did not know at that time that I had DID, and when I went into the uh, hospital, everyone inside quieted down, and I was able to get stabilized. I came out of the hospital, and I uh, moved because I had to take another job. I uh, was a teacher in a public school, and I found a new therapist, and it was uh, in that uh, setting that I, that my parts began to introduce themselves to me on a regular basis. I still did not believe that I had a multiple personality disorder. And uh, so I said that I would like to have a second opinion. And I uh, went to a psychiatrist that had been affiliated with the hospital I was in. And he too confirmed the diagnosis that I had multiple personality disorder, which of course, is now called dissociative identity disorder. Well, your road to recovery also included a faith component. Talk about that as well and how that helped you. Sure. Uh, so I was my I was raised to be an atheist. My parents did not believe in God. My father used to tell us that people who believe in God are either stupid or weak. And so I uh, didn't want to be stupid or weak. And besides, our parents are God for us when we're very young. And so um, I, um, I, I did not believe in God. I was an atheist too. But from a very, very young age, I had uh, stirrings inside of me and yearnings um, for, for God. But I didn't know what to do with them because my family culture um, told me not to believe in this. And um, so the, the, the man that I married also was an atheist. And uh, so we raised our children that way. And um, uh, atheism it really can be almost a religion in and of itself. As I began to decompensate from dissociative identity disorder, I was... Um, my, my existence was really tentative. It was really hard to make it through every day. Um, and I began to pray, even though I didn't believe in God, uh, because just the simple act of praying uh, helped to keep me alive. And my prayer was just, God, give me strength and wisdom. God, give me strength and wisdom. And I, I noticed after about a year, I didn't expect to, to have any any anybody or any God answer my prayer. But it, it, about a year later, I looked back and I thought, well, 
I am getting a little bit stronger and I'm, I think I'm learning things too. So uh, maybe, maybe God is answering my prayer, but it took a while. Uh, I, I still didn't believe in God and I, um, uh, it took a number of years for all of that to come together. I um, began uh, because I was teaching and then leading a Quaker school. I began uh, in Quaker meditative silence, and that was very healing for me. Um, and then eventually uh, I went to the United Church of Christ, which um, also fed my need for liturgy and word. And so all of that really was side by side with my healing. I, I can't tell you exactly how they're connected, Curtis, accepting that I know that they are, um, that I know that this growing faith was connected to my growing healing, and that without that faith, I don't know if I could have made it. Ultimately, I went to seminary, uh, and I um, was ordained in the United Church of Christ and served two um, churches before I retired. So I give God great thanks. <laughs> uh, for those of your listeners who may not have faith, um, I, uh, I respect that because I understand that we all come from different places, and I certainly did. Um, but for those who do have faith, um, I do uh, give um, all power and glory um, to God because um, uh, it was through that growing faith that I was able to hang on and heal and uh, move on to the next phases of my life. Amen. Amen. Well, let's, <laughs> let's talk about Amen. what you're doing to help people with dissociative identity disorder. You have set up writing workshops and memoir classes. Tell us why you decided to do that and what that does to help them and how it posit positively affects them. Yes, thank you. Well, I... Um have started uh, two writers workshop groups. They're online and they're free um, and they're for people with dissociative disorders. And so there are several different dissociative disorders, not just dissociative identity disorder. And so anyone who experiences dissociation um, in that sense is welcome to be a part of these writers workshops. Writing um, can be a healing experience um, and it's a way of um, bringing what's inside of you outside and putting it on the paper. And, um, but when you have uh, this kind of disorder and when you've experienced so much betrayal, it's often hard to trust people. Um, and it's hard to know how to put your innermost thoughts onto paper. And so in our writers' workshops, they are very, very low key. They're very welcoming and accepting and people um, can share their writing or they cannot share it. Um, they can just listen. And then we, we give feedback after um, uh, we've, we've uh, read the, uh, the writing and um, we affirm the, the writers, we affirm the writing and we affirm the story behind the writing. And um, it's, um, it, it not only does it help us uh, bring the stories out into the light on paper, 
but it also builds bonds uh, of trust between the people uh, who attend. And so that's a really wonderful gift for all of them. And um, you can um, uh, learn more about the writer's workshops uh, by going to my website. It's www.lynnbarrett.com. Um, and that's spelled L-Y-N-B-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. And you can find out about the writer's workshops. You can also find out uh, you, you can read my weekly blogs. Um, you can find out about my book and how you can order that. Our, our, our writers' workshops have actually evolved into a group called Dissociative Writers, um, and we are self-publishing a um, anthology of dissociative writing in January. Uh, we have guest bloggers. Uh, we, we, we do a number of things. Uh, to help people in their writing journeys. So um, anyone who uh, has a dissociative disorder or thinks they may have a dissociative disorder or is friends with or a loved one of someone with a dissociative disorder, I really encourage you to check out my website because there are some really um, very helpful tools uh, there for uh, those of us as we're going through this journey of healing. And I would also say, um, I, I, because there are so many, um, this is sort of the, the sensational part of dissociative identity disorder that we didn't really talk about. People get really uh, curious about the other personalities or the alters. Sometimes we call them insiders or parts. Um, and um, our parts um, are um, it saved our lives, really, uh, even though they sometimes can be um, uh, difficult for us as adults. Uh, and so in the healing process, uh, what we need to do is uh, get to know our parts and believe our parts, even if it's hard to believe the stories they tell, we need to believe them. And, and, and that's where writing really helps, because when you write the parts can write to each other and, uh, and, and it really builds communication. And as um, our parts, as we get to know our parts better and they get to know each other better, the, the amnesia walls between them start to lower. And that's how we start to heal. I, I just mentioned that there are uh, the, the treatment that we have uh, leads us to healing. When we get towards the end of healing our symptoms, we, we often have a choice. Sometimes our parts want to uh, integrate together and become one whole, which is what happened to me. And sometimes our parts uh, choose to stay separate, but healthy and collaborative. And we call that functional multiplicity. And so I just wanted to make sure that I noted that there are two endpoints uh, that uh, someone with DID can um, move towards. Um, the most important thing for us is to heal our symptoms. Um, and, and then we can decide whether or not we're going to integrate as one or whether we're going to be functionally multiple. Well, let's talk about your memoir and you also have a free ebook. So tell listeners about those books, what they can expect when they read them. 
Sure. If you go on my website, again, that's www.lynnbarrett.com. There will be a pop-up where you can put your email in. And when when that happens, it'll take you to um, a page where you can download uh, the free ebook. It's a very short little book. Um, and it just tells you a little bit about DID and what you might expect if you've recently been diagnosed or if someone you love has been diagnosed. I hope people will feel really comfortable to look at that because it's it's very simple. Um, it's not complicated. It's very short, but it gives you an idea of what DID is. Uh, my memoir, on the other hand, um, is a full-length book. Um, and I have uh, mentioned before that the title is Crazy, uh, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. Uh, it really um, starts in my early 30s when I um, am living a wonderfully happy life and then everything falls apart. And so we go back and forth between what's happening now and what happened when I was younger uh, what's happening now and um, uh, uh, what I um, remember and don't remember from my childhood. And it takes you through my whole healing process. And it's a, it's a good read. Um, and it, I, again, I also hope it's educational and inspirational uh, because I, um, I, I integrated um, 10 years after I was diagnosed so, which is really 20 years ago, because I'm 74 years old now. <laughs> and uh, so, so for 20 years of my life, the 10 years that led up to my diagnosis, and the 10 years after, um, I was living in constant pain, uh, and confusion and unreality. But because I did the therapeutic work that I did, uh, and I kept moving forward, uh, I didn't give up. Um, and I relied on this power that is greater than myself, uh, the power that I call God. Um, and, uh, and for all of these reasons, I, um, I was able to heal. And, uh, and, and, and what a gift and, and um, uh, what a wonder uh, to have been able to heal and to integrate uh, as one person. Now, once I integrated, um, uh, now the book only goes up to the integration, and then there's a short epilogue that tells about my life after that. Yeah, none of our lives are perfect, and my life hasn't been perfect, um, even since in integration, but um, it's been wonderful, and, and I am so grateful, uh, and I'm happy, uh, and I lead a very fulfilled life. I am so glad that um, God did not let me die when I attempted suicide, and I'm so glad that I was able to, um, I, even though I had suicidal ideation throughout that period of time, I somehow kept myself from, from attempting that again, uh, because life on the other side is such a gift, and I I'm here talking to you, Curtis, because I want people to know that no matter what their trials are, even if it's not dissociative identity disorder, that life is a gift and that there's always another, uh, uh, there's always another side. We can always get to another side um, and not to give up. In the case of dissociative identity disorder, which is an extremely painful disorder, um, that even with that, 
there is um, uh, there is hope and there is life. Well, tell us about the process that you went through writing your memoir and what ultimately made you decide to write it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've had an interesting life and I've um, even beyond the, the DID and I'm a good writer. And so when I was thinking about retiring, Curtis, um, I kept thinking, well, I should write a book. But when I would try to think about what I would write about, I just got nothing. I would just go blank. I couldn't think of anything to write about. And I thought that was really curious because I know that I have a lot to write about and I know that I'm a reasonably good writer. And so I wondered, why is that? You know, why, why can't I think of anything to write about? Why do I just sort of go blank at that question? And, um, and then I realized that I went blank at that question because I needed to write this book first before I write anything else that this story had to come out before I could tackle any other topics. So I did start writing in 2014 and I wrote for about two years. And um, actually I went to a, a workshop that was called uh, Writing for Healing. And when I read a little bit of what I was writing, some somebody, was kind of upset that I would speak the way I spoke about a family member and I I just shut down and I thought okay I'm not going to do this and so for another two or three years I shut down and I never picked it up uh, but somehow I knew it was still there and that it was going to come up again and so I, I started up again uh, in in December of 2018 and it it for the next four months, it just flowed out of me. And then again, December of 2019, it flowed out of me. So the first draft was finished in, um, uh, in, in April of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. After the first draft was finished, <laughs> I did 10 more revisions. So uh, I, uh, I really wanted it to um, be the best that I could make it. And um, I, I, I revised and I revised. I, I let friends read it and uh, give me feedback. And uh, I eventually did um, hire an editor who could actually professionally tell me what was working and what wasn't working. And so I continued to, um, to work on it until um, uh, late, uh, early last year. And then I uh, began to submit it for publication. And so, uh, here we are. And uh, today, the exciting thing is I just got a, a, a box of softbound and hardbound copies. It hasn't been published yet. It doesn't come out until January 3rd, but the publisher gets it early. And so if you had if you had video here, I'd, I'd pick up a book and show it to you because I'm really excited. Um, and um, uh, but um, but uh, you and uh, your listeners um, are um Welcome to uh, check it out on my website and order it if you'd like to, um, and um, and also to email me on my website because I'm happy to hear from people, and I'd like to know um, what they think, not just about my memoir but about their lives as well. So um, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows that I'm very accessible. 
tell us about any current or upcoming projects besides your new book that you're working on that people need to know about? Oh, thank you, Curtis, for asking that question. I just have to say, I, I've been teaching, I, I just finished my last class teaching a memoir class for people with dissociative dis disorders. Um, the last class um, was just a few days ago. And, and, and people asked me there, well, when's your next book coming out? And I said, I just need to get through this one first. Um, so um, I appreciate your asking me that question. Uh, what I can tell you is that my plan is after I take a rest um, is to write um, a, um, a book of meditations for people with dissociative disorders um, that they can uh, read in the morning or in the evening uh, during a reflective time um, to help them um, as they cope uh, with the disorder. Well, give us some final thoughts to close it out. Well, my final thoughts are um, that I'm so glad to be speaking on your podcast and to your listeners. Um, I'm sure they've all heard of dissociative identity disorder and they have probably been curious about it or wondered about it or maybe have learned things about it that are not entirely accurate. Um, and so that my hope is that uh, with our conversation that people will understand the disorder a little bit better, um, that they will not be afraid of it, um, that they will understand that they can't fix the person who has DID, but they can be um, a friend or someone to walk beside them. And they can encourage that person to get appropriate uh, trauma-informed therapy and um, that there is life and hope beyond DID um, and, um, and that uh, to remember that DID is caused by chronic early childhood trauma and abuse. And although it's not fun to end on that note, that is the truth. And we need to, as uh, individuals, as people, and as um, communities in a nation, you know, face the fact that childhood abuse is, um, uh, is rampant and we need to do everything we can to prevent it. Um, but in the case of DID, uh, we need to do everything we can to support the people um, who used such a creative coping strategy to cope with an um, impossible childhood. Ladies and gentlemen, landbarrett.com. Please be sure to follow, rate, review, share Lynn's story after listening because our story could help save lives. Also, Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me today. Your story could help someone. Thank you so much for having me, Curtis. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. dream.